Thank you, Anne and Tracy. Here are some of the big questions asked by the community of Southcote. Why can't all people of the Middle East and the world respect each other's beliefs? These are all questions that were written on those cards that people submitted. Why are there religious wars? Why do people think their God is the only one? If God created the world, why are there other religions? If God is real, why do people believe in lots of different religions? And in response to those questions, I'm going to attempt, when I grab my stick, here we are. In response to those questions, I'm going to attempt to answer uh, three questions that I've pulled out of those. So I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to ask, why are there any religions at all? Secondly, I'm going to ask, why are there many different ones? And thirdly, I'm going to ask the question, how can we claim that Christianity is the one true faith? So, why are there any religions at all? Well, after all, many Westerners today would say that modern science and technology has replaced religion as the source of knowledge about humanity, the world and the universe. People should just accept that fact and dump their outdated beliefs and traditions. And one of the reasons that this kind of thinking goes on is that the media particularly thrives on confrontation. So it likes to pitch hardline atheists like Richard Dawkins against hardline creationists and come up with a picture of total incompatibility between science and religious belief. When in fact, the picture is nothing like that. It's much more subtle, much more complex than that. Francis Collins, one of the world's leading evolutionary biologists and research scientists who headed up the entire human genome project, that's a pretty important job he did, believes in aspects of evolutionary science, but also believes that the tuning, the fine-tuning, the beauty, the order of creation, all point to a divine creator. And having been an atheist for most of his life, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and talked openly about his conversion experience. And the fact is that despite what the media tends to portray... The reason there are any religions at all, and many, is because the vast majority of people on the planet believe there's a God. And we heard some of those reasons earlier, didn't we, when Kirsty was going around with the microphone, why people think there is a God. First of all, the revelation of God in creation. Like Francis uh, Collins, millions of people simply look at the extraordinary beauty of creation and see the hand of God. When I, I don't know about you, but when I watch David Attenborough's Planet Earth, I am more and more convinced, not less and less, I'm more and more convinced that I see the Creator's hand in it. The Bible says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Put simply, we look at the awesome beauty of the universe and we say, this is no accident. That's one of the reasons that people believe there's a God. Secondly, the inspiration of God's spirit. Millions of people, myself included, probably you included as well, would say that they have experienced God calling them into relationship with him. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. God has set eternity in the human heart. St. Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It seems that God's Spirit is constantly calling us to him, inviting us into relationship with him. And that's another reason why people believe there's a God. And something closely related to this is the need to pray. And this is the actual experience of knowing that we don't have all the answers, but having a sense that there's someone who does. The fact that something like 90% of the world, at some time or other, pray, whether or not they've have any religious belief or not, when we've run out of resources, when we realise that our dependency on something bigger than ourselves, something outside of ourselves, whether, whether we have a religious background or not, we turn to God and we ask instinctively for his help. We seem to have an inbuilt sense that he can hear us. So those are some of the reasons. But if human beings then do have a a sense that there is a higher power, that there must be a God of creation who set eternity in the hearts of of men and draws us to pray, then why are there so many different ones? Well, I think that as long as men and women have walked the earth, when human beings have seen God's hand in creation, when they've felt the inspiration of God's spirit, and when they've experienced that communion with him in prayer... They've wanted to describe him in words, to put a name to it, to define who God is. And of course, the moment we do that, we introduce error into the concept of God because we inevitably see God through the customs of the culture we live in, through the lens of our ancestral history and our vision of, well, perhaps who we want him to be. You only have to look at films and images depicting Jesus as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Californian when he would almost certainly have been a dark-haired, dark-skinned Israelite, to understand that humans have an innate tendency to make God in our image. Or if you're British and you sing Jerusalem with great patriotic gusto, and did those feet, meaning the feet of Jesus, in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green. And of course we all know that they jolly well did not. Jesus never went anywhere near England. But we want to believe somehow that he's British. That's how Mormonism got started. In 1776, America became an independent country. Barely 50 years later, Jesus was effectively declared to be American-owned when Joseph Smith published the Book of Mormon. We want God to be like us. There's this human tendency. And that's why there's so many religions. There's so much, if you like, error introduced into who God is. For thousands of years, all over the world, human beings who've seen the hand of God in creation, who've felt the inspiration of his spirit and experienced that divine communion, have described him in many and erroneous ways. And as a result, there are dozens and dozens of different religions. And so we come at last to the $64,000 question. How can we say that Christianity is true? That it's the one true faith? Many people who do not profess to have any faith in God would say today that one of the greatest issues with the world is the conflict that religion causes. 
In his book, The Reason for God, Timothy Keller quotes a young woman who came to his church and said, how could there be just one true faith? Surely it's arrogant to say that your religion is superior. Surely all the religions are equally valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. And on the face of it, that sounds sort of reasonable, a reasonable thing to say, doesn't it? But if you'd give it just a little thought, it soon becomes apparent that there's a huge problem with it. What about the Branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventists who ended up shooting police and other law enforcement people, as well as many of them dying themselves in the Waco siege of 1993? What about the Moonies who believed in Sun Myung Moon, who claimed to be the immortal Messiah, and then inconveniently died at the age of 92? What about Jediism, the fictional force of Star Wars movies, and yet many people fill out the census forms as followers of Jediism? And much more topically, and much more seriously, what about the theology and doctrine of ISIS? Can we really say that all religions are equally valid? Of course we can't. Every religion needs to be put under the spotlight of inquiry to discover whether or not its teachings are good and true. But before I answer that third and final question, how can we claim Christianity to be the one true faith? I'd like to invite Nusrat to come up now. Would you, would you come up, Nusrat, um, who is a visitor to us this morning? And, um, and I know Nusrat, thank you, Nusrat, so much for coming up. It's very, uh, very kind of you to join us this morning. I know Nusrat because she attends Reading Christian Network prayer meeting on a Wednesday morning that I attend as well. So that's how I know her. And Nusrat was brought up in a Muslim family. Um, today, she's a Christian. Uh, she's a follower of Jesus. And so I just want to invite her along to just tell us how that happened and why. Is that okay? Can I just hand over and let you, let you speak? Thanks, Nusrat. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Um, yeah, Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And indeed... That's what I was searching for. My parents said that I was born in a Muslim family. I was born in Pakistan. I read the Quran in Arabic. From an early age, I had to learn to recite the Quran. And the Quran is only done in Arabic language. And my mother tongue is Urdu. So what I was reciting, I didn't know what I was reciting. Girls weren't allowed to go to mosque in those days, so we had to learn the Quran at home by the local imam who came. And I often used to ask him questions that, what does this mean? Because I don't know what I'm reciting. But in that, you can't ask a question. You can't challenge it. You just have to recite it. And I so desperately wanted Allah of the Quran to communicate. I was searching for that inner peace because my dad's family wanted a son and I'm the firstborn and long I came a daughter. Two years later we had another sister and my dad's family thought that I was a curse. So I lived with a lot of rejection so I just went deeper into crown. I fasted as you know that Muslims are fasting at the moment and it's Eid tomorrow. So 30 days you fast because you want to get closer to God. And 30 days you pray, because every time a Muslim bows down to pray five times a day, 
They ask in the question to Allah, you know, show us the true path. So I used to think, don't we know the true path? Because you're praying five times a day. But there's no communication in the Quran from God speaking to you. There's no relationship with Allah. He's up there, you're down here. No matter how holy, how righteous you are, you never hear from God. And those were the questions that I used to ask my family, my mom and dad. They said, no, you can't challenge. You have to just be obedient, good Muslim girl. And as I said, I grew up a lot of rejection. I was searching for that peace. I fasted 30 days in the month of Ramadan. I prayed five times a day. I earnestly wanted God to communicate with me, and he did not. So I got married at an early age because my dad wanted a son, and I was such a disappointment, but he was always made me known how disappointed he was with me. So I left early, I got married, I brought shame and dishonor to the Asian community. So I was forced to marry this young man I didn't even know. So I grew my life like, you know, I was brought up like that. Then my husband said, you're not a good Muslim woman. So I started to cover my hair. I did everything that was expected of me, but there was no inner peace. By this time I had two, cho- two children. I was pregnant with my third child. I went into hospital, and you know, hundreds of women go day in and day out of hospital, give birth, they come home. I went to give birth, and I met the true savior. So there I was in hospital with one midwife, I was just about to give birth, and next thing I know, I was just lifted out of my body, and I was being drawn to the ceiling, and I could see myself on the bed, I could see the midwife, and I was thinking, why am I down here, and why am I up here? And next thing I know, I was transported into another room. And this room was, how can I describe it? It was just so holy, so pure, so white, so surreal. Everything I ever wanted in my life, I felt it was in this room. Because I could sense peace, I could smell peace, I could even taste peace. That's how incredible this room was. And then I saw this figure coming towards me. And I was going towards this figure. And as I got to this figure, all I could see was the outline of the hair. I saw the hands. I saw purple robe. And when I tried to see the face... I just could not see the face because it's so dazzling white, so holy, so pure. It's like, imagine in a football stadium and you see those floodlights come on. It's like 10,000 light bulbs just gone on. And I thought I was going to go blind because the light was so dazzling. But as I got to the figure, the hand went up like that and I came back into my body and my son was born. And now there's like six, seven people in the room. And I could hear in the background, someone said, oh, we're going to lose her. But you know, in that moment, I knew I had met the Prince of Peace. And people say, well, how do you know it was Jesus? Well, when you meet God, you know. And I knew that was a Jesus, not the Jesus of the Quran that I was taught and brought up. Because in the Quran, Jesus has another name. 
So in the Quran, he is a prophet. He is known by Hazrat Isa. But I knew it was not Hazrat Isa. I knew that you know, this was the light, that this was the peace that I so desired. But I also knew the cost of telling people that I had met Jesus. So a long time, I was a secret believer. So I used to believe in the heart, but I used to pretend to be a Muslim because I was living in a Muslim community. I was married to a Muslim man. My family is a Muslim. I couldn't tell them, well, actually, you're wrong, and I'm right because I'm a Jesus. I couldn't say that. But then a time came when I couldn't serve two masters. I had to love one and reject the other. And I was in a church service, and I was going hidingly to church so my family wouldn't find. That's how desperate I was to know Jesus. And the more I learned about Jesus' character, the more in love I came. And then he was, announcement came for baptism, if anybody wants to be baptized. And I think I must have put my hands up about ten times before putting them down. I was so scared because I knew what it meant. Once I was baptized, I could never deny Jesus again. So I got baptized on Valentine's Day. Don't you think that's pretty cool? <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. So I got baptized on Valentine, and next day I told my family. And I knew my family would be upset. I knew there might be, be rejection. But I didn't know the cost that I had to pay to follow Jesus. So I told my family I'm a follower of Jesus. I got locked up. I got beaten up. My husband threatened to kill me. My daughter then decided she didn't want a Christian mother. She was 16, so I had a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old son. My husband decided that he didn't want a Christian wife, so he was on his way to kill me. And next thing I know, that my world was turned upside down. I had to go into hiding. I just had to, for in a few minutes, to pack a few things. My daughter decided she's going to stay with my mom. And it was a horrible, horrible time. But knowing that Jesus, what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that was so relevant into my life. I stood my ground because I knew I found the truth. I knew that Jesus was real. I knew that he loved me. And I knew that he said he had a plan and a purpose for me. So I stood my ground to a great opposition. I was beaten up regularly. I was spat at. You name it, I've had it. And then I went into refuge, and the Lord showed me that I had to leave my hometown And before that, my family called a meeting. So I went to this meeting, and I wanted to tell them that this is a love relationship, that I wasn't rejecting them. I just rejected Islam because I fell in love with this man called Jesus. And that's what I wanted them to understand, but they would not. They said that I've been brainwashed by the Christians and that God is not real and that I'm going to go to hell. And so they offered me everything you can name. But then my husband had divorced me over the phone. In Islamic culture, you can do that. You can divorce your wife three times over the phone. So he did that. And so my family said, they'll get me married again. Deny Jesus. I said, no deal. 
Rajina, my grandfather left me a lot of land worth millions. They took that off me because I was an infidel, unclean. So my auntie offered me that land again. She goes, here's your land. Deny Jesus. I said, no deal. They said, we'll give you all the money in the bank. We'll get you married. We'll make you happy. Deny Jesus. Come back as a Muslim. I said, no deal. And then they had one thing left, and that was my mom. And my mom, to me, was so precious. I loved her to bits. And it was my mom that I kept, you know, I was a secret believer because I couldn't bear to hurt my mom. She was everything to me. So they said, here's your mom, here's Jesus, you choose. And if your mom dies, you'll never come to the funeral. And that time, I think I trembled and I, you know, I thought, Lord, everything else I can deny, but how do I deny this woman that gave me birth, that loved me, that looked after me in great hardship, that she had to separate me for my own safety because her, my dad's family would have killed me. She separated me when I was young, so I was raised by my granddad. I thought, how could I hurt this woman? I was a very new Christian. I didn't know my scriptures that well. And the voice said, he who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Pick up your cross, Nasrud, and follow me. So I turned to my family and I said, I'm sorry. I cannot deny Jesus. So you're rejecting your mom? I says, yes. And I don't know who punched me, who kicked me, but next thing I know, I was thrown out of the house, and I knew that relationship was severed. So for 10 years, I was disowned. So in the beginning, God told me to move, and move where? To Reading. So I really did question God then. I thought, God, you can't be serious. I thought you were going to send me to the Caribbean or the Fiji Islands or somewhere, a woman exotic with these mango trees and everything. He goes, no, move to Reading. So I came to Reading, 1st of May, 93, and I've been serving God ever since. And, you know, God had restored those relationships that were severed. God enabled me to forgive my father. He died a few years ago. Now, my mom... She regularly asks me to pray in the name of Jesus. Wow. So that is... Well, that's my journey. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing with us. Listen, I'm sure there'll be lots of people who would love to catch you over coffee and that's ask fine. you some more questions. Thank you so much. Can we give her a round of applause? No. Yes. I'm going to wrap up quickly <laughs> here because that was just an amazing, amazing story, wasn't it? Um, but I am going to make the outrageous claim that Christianity is the one true faith. And it all, as you've just heard from Nusrat, it all hangs on Jesus. Christianity is unlike any other religion and it's able to impart the truth about God unlike any other religion because It knows, like no other religion, that God has walked this earth in human form. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All other religions say, if you want to find God, do this, do that, do the other. Jesus said, if you want to find God, I am the way, 
I am the truth. I am the life. And if he was speaking the truth, then in Jesus we have the truest picture of who God is. And what we find is a God of love, who loves us more than we could ever have guessed. A God who doesn't demand things from us, but a God who has already done everything necessary in order for us to come to him. A God who has, in Jesus, suffered terribly on our account so that we don't have to face judgment ourselves. A God who loves us so much that he's laid down his life on the cross and taken our place so that we simply need to accept his love with thankful hearts. Christianity is, above all, the religion of love and grace. But I want to quote C.S. Lewis on other religions, because I think this is a really important point. He said this, that if you're a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point of all religions of the whole world is one huge mistake. But if you're a Christian, you are free to think that those religions, even the strangest ones, can contain at least some hint of the truth. But of course, being a Christian does mean that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum and all the others are wrong, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. It all stands and falls on the person of Jesus. Jesus has always been the linchpin of the Christian faith and the stumbling block of those who would play down his uniqueness, his grace above all, but also his many miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his claim to be able to forgive sins, and as well as his much more direct claims to be God, leave us with no middle ground. As C.S. Lewis concluded, either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or he was deluded or an imposter. But don't let us try and claim that he was a prophet or a great moral teacher. He hasn't left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. As the Apostle Peter said in our reading from Acts a little earlier, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. For Peter, of course, had heard the very words of Jesus, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray.